Over the holidays, our family saw the movie Boys in the Boat. I don't know if you've seen it. It's amazing. Maybe you read the book a few years ago. It's the true story of the University of Washington's rowing team. It was 1936, and whoever won the NCAA championship in rowing that year would represent the U.S. in the Olympics. So it was a big deal who would win. Now, if you know anything about the 1936 Olympics, you know those Olympics were uh, held in Berlin and hosted by none other than Adolf Hitler himself. Now, without spoiling a really, really good movie and a great book, I don't want to give all of it away. You just need to know everyone was clapping at the end of the movie in the theater. It was awesome. It was so good. But thinking of that movie and thinking of that sport of rowing, interestingly, the success of the boat revolved around the unity of the rowers. Every single motion had to be in sync. Every second was critical. Every pull had to be perfectly in sync together. As you can imagine, what was the problem in the book, what was the problem in the story, had nothing to do with the boat itself. It had nothing to do with the water in which the boat was on. It had to do with the people who were rowing. The problem is they were not machines. They were people. They were real people who had real problems real issues. Some were academic, some were financial, some were health, some were attitudinal. The coach had a few problems of his own. The reality is they were people, and when a group of people are gathered together, if something is not right with one of them, nothing's going to be right with all of them either. Now, you can guess where this sermon is going to go. What does this have to do with our passage for today? And as we are going to see, God's church is to be so unified in our mission that when we work together, we achieve that which only God could do through us. Now, we are in the fourth chapter of Philippians. This is the final chapter, and it contains Paul's applications for us as the church. This is all in response to this ongoing thank you note that Paul has given to his friends in Philippi who sent material goods to him while he was imprisoned. Paul's passion throughout this letter, which leads to these applications, is that God's people in Christ are to experience his joy. True, supernatural joy unrelated to one's circumstances. And that is all because we are, quote, citizens of heaven, even while we live here on this earth. So whatever issues we face today because of our union in Christ in heaven, we actually can't experience his joy. We really can't. It's not just for us individually, though. It is for his body, the church. So today, we're going to see a little bit of drama inside the church. We have a little bit of a soap opera in front of us. We have two women in a fight. Seriously, I'm not making this up. It's right there in the passage. Today's passage deals with conflict between two members of a church, as if such a hypothetical thing could ever exist in the church today. It's not hypothetical then. This is a real scenario inside of a real local church, and Paul deals with it. What we're going to see this morning is joy cannot exist with unresolved conflict amongst members of Christ's body. Let me repeat that. 
True joy cannot exist without, with unresolved conflict amongst members of Christ's body. Since unity and joy are connected, we cannot have one without the other. And I think this is appropriate on this Sunday that we celebrate our 40th anniversary as a church, that we need to be reminded of this. All churches need to be reminded of this. It's why it's in Scripture. This message is important. So my question for us is this. How does reconciliation happen inside the local church today? I want to see this in two ways. First, notice the foundation of reconciliation. And then secondly, the applications of reconciliation. So foundation and application. And I I warn you in advance, this is going to be an application-rich sermon. And my prayer for us is that may that the Lord would move us in his ways to do that which he has called us to do. All right, first, look back at verse 1 of chapter 4. Notice this foundation that we have with our unity. Will taught us this verse last week, and, and we see the therefore at the beginning of the chapter sets in motion all that will follow. It's this call to do something in response to everything that we have heard up until now. And that is namely what we are to do is to stand firm, to be steadfast in these following actions that he's going to give us throughout the rest of chapter 4, including this very hard work of dealing with personal conflict with each other inside the church. The question is, where do we find the motivation to do something none of us naturally will ever want to do? How do we do something that is so hard, so difficult, that we would run in the opposite direction, but the Lord is telling us to move forward? The key is to notice the language which surrounds this imperative to stand firm. Look back in verse 1. Do you see the Lord's choice of words here? Even, I would argue, his tone of voice as he writes them. Embrace your status as an adopted child of Christ. Before you're going to be asked to do something hard, notice how we are described in verse 1. Notice these positive descriptions to the point that it's almost too good to be true. Paul says, my brothers, whom I love, whom I long for, my joy, my crown, my beloved. These are good phrases. These are good promises. These are descriptions of people in a family, in a family that is dearly loved. Do you see what's happening? Paul's about to ask them to do something really, really difficult. But he provides the fuel, the motivation first. And what is this fuel? It is that we are with family together and with God himself. As Paul describes his friends in Philippi as his joy and his crown, that is the overflow of the gospel message to Paul. If you look back at the beginning of the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 1, you don't have to turn there now, but just be reminded of this. Paul begins the whole letter by saying, To the saints in Philippi. You know who the saints are? It's the beloved ones of God. Notice how he does not begin this letter. He does not say to the sinners in Philippi. That could be true, but that's not how he describes them. It's to the saints who are in Philippi. Our motivation to obey is that in Christ, we are the Lord's beloved Can you enjoy that this morning? Can you accept it this morning? 
with whatever the Lord may call you to do, you do so because you are his beloved. Later today, there will be two great football games. The battle for the Super Bowl happens today. The Kansas City Swifties play the Ravens. The 49ers play against the eventual champions and Steven Leinert's favorite team, the Detroit Lions. In both games, there will be pre-game speeches. In both games, there will be halftime speeches. There will be sideline speeches. There will be on-field speeches. All of these will be to motivate players to perform, to play, to compete, to achieve, to work, to correct. And I assume, I say I assume because I've never been on an NFL roster if you didn't know that. I assume none of these speeches, none of these motivations will include the words, my beloved, my joy, my crown, you whom I long for, you whom I love, go crush your opponent. (laughs) I don't think that will happen. I suspect the language will be somewhat different. I suspect the tone of voice will be rather different. And why is that? Catch this, because this is the gospel. Because yelling and screaming and comparing and cursing and shaming and belittling, it will work to get you to do something that you have the ability to do. It'll work. If I go for a run and someone comes along beside me and yells at me constantly to run harder, for a while, I'll run a little harder. Now, do you see how Christianity is something completely different? Paul is leading them and is leading us to do things that all of the yelling and the screaming and the comparing will never help us to achieve. Scripture is always commanding us to do things we can't do in our own strength. Love your enemy. Can you shame me into that? Pray for those who persecute you. Can you compare me to others and cause me to want to do that? Stand firm, even if you're imprisoned. Forgive. In our own strength, no way. We just can't do that. We will always fail. But in Christ, it's a whole other situation. With him doing the work where he lives inside of us, we really can't do all things through Christ who gives us strength. You see, this is the foundation for all of these applications. These are the words that are given to those who have the ability to do that which Jesus does. So for us to stand firm this morning, church, you must know we are his beloved. We are Jesus' joy. We are his family. That's the foundation. So now the question has to be asked, what's he want us to do with this foundation? What is the application for us this morning because we are his family? Let me ask it another way. Scripturally speaking, how are we to experience joy this morning? Now, point two, let's look at this 
set of applications with these two women. Let's consider the applications of reconciliation. Look back at verses 2 and 3. What on earth is going on with these two women whose names I cannot pronounce? All right, here's some facts about this situation. First, this is all we know about these two people. They are not mentioned anywhere else in all of Scripture. So there are very few conclusions we can draw. But we see that they are listed here. Now, of course, I need to say this. These principles are not just for women who are in conflict. This would be for anyone who is in conflict inside the church. The cause of their dispute, it's not known. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chose not to reveal what it was. So we could speculate, but that's all we'd be doing. However, their disagreement was well known. News of it spread all the way from Philippi to Rome, hundreds of miles away, traveling by foot. It was significant, and the whole church knew about it. Also, it must be noted, this conflict was between leaders and the church. They didn't have to be leaders, but in this case, it's worth noting they were. These women, quote, labored beside Paul for the work of the gospel. These were influential members of the church. They, I assume, would be doing very similar things that we are doing now. They would have been involved in serving the poor and praying and teaching scripture, acts of mercy, The exact same works we do. So notice, leaders are not immune from conflict. Rather, it seems to be they are more susceptible to it. But what I've wrestled with all this week is simply this question. Why did this unknown conflict of these two leaders make its way into the canon of Scripture? Why? What does God want us to see all of these years later? It's also fascinating to think about in the context of the entire book of Philippians. This whole book is so positive. It's such good news. It's one good thing after another. And now this. Why couldn't Paul have just kind of swept it under the rug? And let's just focus on the good news from Timothy and all that. But the answer is clear. And we've seen throughout the letter. Unity and joy go together. In chapter 2, we are to have the same mind. We are together. The church, the local church, this one in Philippi or TCPC today is a body. Jesus is the head and we are the members. If one part is hurting, we all are hurting. So what does this look like for us practically this week? With people that you may have experienced some form of conflict, what are we to do? knowing that our joy is incomplete if there is unresolved conflict. I want to close this morning with several points of application about reconciliation that we see directly here from this passage with these two church leaders. First, reconciliation is an invitation of God. Notice the term that Paul used here. He said that he entreats Odia. He entreats Syntyche. He had the authority as an apostle to command them. He commands other things at other times, but he does not hear. Rather, he gives this word that we could also translate to be, I appeal to you. 
That is, he does not shame them. He encourages them to do this. He does not belittle them. It's an encouragement. It's an invitation. It's as if Paul said, you want joy, don't you? Then be reconciled. Please, for the joy of the whole church. Second thing to notice here. Reconciliation is personal. It's not ambiguous. It's personal. The fact that these names are mentioned does, in fact, make it a personal issue. In my study this week, at first, I took that these women must have been very embarrassed when this uh, letter was read for the first time. But the more I studied, I'm not so sure that's the case. In Dennis Johnson's commentary, he mentioned the reality that the fact that their names were mentioned actually would have given dignity to them and dignity to the problem. Yet, the problem that is dignified is that they are fighting with each other. But he names them. Odious and Tike, I appeal to you two. Disunity in the church has names attached. It does. It's not just generic. They're people, beloved people who are hurting, who are not experiencing joy, and it affects us all. Reconciliation is personal. Thirdly, reconciliation requires both parties. This is fascinating, and this this stood out to me throughout the week. In the original language, it it would read very much just like the ESV. I entreat Odia, I entreat Sintike. Notice what Paul does not do. He does not mention which one is right and which one is wrong. Or maybe they both were wrong. He doesn't go there. The point was, it was both of their responsibilities to act in faith. They were both to take this seriously. If you look back in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus speaks about dealing with conflict, in Matthew 5, he says that those who have initiated offense against someone else are to go to them. But then in Matthew 18, he calls for those who have been sinned against to go to the one who sinned against them. So, whose responsibility is it to take steps of reconciliation? It's the offended and the offendor. It's both. As in, church, do not wait for anyone to come to you. You go to them. Your joy is dependent. Also notice, number four, reconciliation does not require agreement with each other. I love this. Verse 2 is critical. These two ladies were to agree in the Lord. Scripture says nothing that they have to agree with one another. Not necessarily. The reality is for us as a church and every local church throughout the world, we are going to disagree on things. Amen? You're free to say it. Amen? Of course we are. We're going to have different opinions. We're going to look at things differently. We're going to vote differently. We may not like the new carpet. The list could go on and on and on. But can we agree in the Lord? And the answer to that is because of the gospel, we can. Can you this morning pray for your fellow church members? Can you be committed to the same purpose? Even if you disagree on significant things, can you agree in the Lord? Number five, reconciliation may involve a third party. Look at verse three. 
Paul calls out someone, but this time he does not mention a name. And I find this fascinating. He simply calls out to someone, quote, who was the true companion. Who on earth is this person? Perhaps it was the entire church, or perhaps whoever was reading this letter, Paul knew that that person knew what to do. A dear friend of Paul. Regardless, the other church members are asked to do something. They are told to, quote, help these women. To help them. Why would they need help? It's because they are not experiencing the joy that Christ has for them. The reality for us all, we have to accept this, is that reconciliation is hard. And it requires all of us to get into the mess of it. Do you want to do that? No, you do not. No one does. But sometimes we need another party to help us. Maybe this morning, you are not experiencing conflict with anyone. Maybe this morning, there is no one who has conflict with you. Hallelujah. So maybe this morning, you're being called to be a true companion for someone else today. And if so, you're thinking, why on earth would I want to do that? I don't want to. This is hard. And I would simply say to you, beloved, my joy and crown, you can do it. Because Christ is doing it through you. Last thing here. We'll prepare to come around the table with this. Verse 3. End of verse 3. Number 6. Reconciliation reflects all of eternity. I kind of chuckled at this as I was preparing the sermon this week. Paul lovingly brings out the big guns of theology here to convince these two to be reconciled. He mentions that these women's names are written in, quote, the book of life. That is, he wrote their names into the book of Philippians, but now he references a bigger book than that. And it is the book found in Revelation chapter 3, which contains the names of all of God's elect. He included their names in this book. He was basically saying, beyond what our ability to understand, God has predestined you for all of eternity. Therefore, you will be together for all eternity going forward. You might as well enjoy being together today. You're together God has put us together. For us this morning, the names in that book are all of the believers in Philippi. Odia's name is in the book. Satike's name is in the book. This guy Clement, who we know nothing about, his name is in the book. Everyone throughout world history who has bowed the knee of Jesus, their names are in the book, including us this morning. We're going to be together forever. So today, let's agree in the Lord. In the name of Jesus, let's agree in him. Let's experience the joy together that comes from reconciliation. Let's experience the joy of going to each other. The joy of treating each other the way Christ treats us. This is the message. How can we do this? Only because Christ is in us and this is how he treats us. Friends, this morning as we come around this table, we do so with the reality that our names are written in this book if we know Christ. Christ is the one who has known us, who has loved us, who has prayed for us. 
He has cared for us for eternity, and he will not stop loving us. When Jesus went to the cross, he ensured his love for us will never be contained. The foundation of reconciliation is the cross. The application of our reconciliation is the message of the cross together. We together, he died for us, he prays for us, so may we live and sink together with him. This is our hope. This is our prayer. Christ loves us. In his grace and kindness, may we love each other. Joy is ours in him. Amen? Man, let's pray and transition to the Lord's Prayer, and we will come and feast around this one table. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, you never command us to do that which we cannot do in your power. Father, I pray for churches throughout the world until you return. Lord Jesus, in your kindness, make us one, we pray. And now we pray collectively with one voice as the body of Jesus Christ. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.